Please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, and Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered, answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. All right. So David, the king chosen by God to replace Saul. We understand that God has already chosen David to be the, the, the next king. But Saul is still in power. And yet David is the one who faithfully serves Saul. David is the one who... Uh, took down Goliath. David is the one who has proven to be a mighty military asset to Saul, and yet he is on Saul's most wanted list. Saul wants David dead, and, and so um, David has begun to fear that Saul wants him dead. Now those fears have been confirmed, as we saw in chapter 20, uh, when Jonathan, the son of Saul, confirmed to David that, yes, my father is angry and out of his mind and wants you dead. And so um, the friends then part ways, and David's on his own. So over the past few weeks, we've seen God show this protection. We've seen God's protection over David. And now today, especially in, in chapter 21, we're going to see God's sovereign provision. God's sovereign provision. Uh, for not just David, obviously for us as well. And so what, what God has promised us, folks, is not just to to save us by his grace, but to provide for us by his grace. And so we not only trust Christ for forgiveness of sins, we trust Christ every day. What's the Lord's Prayer say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our... Okay. So that portion is this reminder to us that we must rely on God daily for provision. And it's also a promise that 
he will provide our daily bread. And so we're going to see this played out even here in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel as we watch David fleeing for his life. That's what's happening now, right? David is fleeing for his life now. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 21 that he comes to a place called Nob. It says, then, came, or then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to, to meet David trembling and said to him, well, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, well, the king has uh, charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I sent you. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And, uh, um, you know, uh, he, 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 he sent me on this mission, which I, he said, I sent you, I send you, and with which I have charged you. Don't tell anybody about that. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So David stammers around. Obviously, Ahimelech's a little worried to see David alone. It seems odd. Everybody knows David. Uh, they know his, his power. By himself, he's a pretty, pretty big force to contend with. Uh, so here's David showing up at, at Ahimelech's door. So he approaches him with fear and a little bit of, of suspicion. What are you doing alone? David makes up this story. Well, I'm on a secret mission. So secret that I, I really don't even know what it is myself, basically. I mean, I, I just, here I, I am. I'm on a secret mission. And about those fellows that you think aren't with me, they're with me. And we've got a plan. We're going to meet over here at such and such a time. <laughs> so I've got some guys with me. That's kind of what he's doing. He's making up this, this story here. And, and he's literally by himself. I don't believe there's other guys. I think he's just saying this. Well, you know how it is if a stranger knocks on uh, your door and you're uh, a young a child and not too young, but you know, you're a little scared and maybe you are alone, 15, 16 at home, but you stay, Oh, my mom, and my dad's over, in the, you know, taking a shower or whatever, right? They're here. And it's kind of what David's doing. Well, there's guys with me and we got a plan to meet in, in such a, such a place here in a few minutes. I'm here just to see if you've got some food. So there's where he's at in verse three. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. So a lot is here. David's asking, right, for sustenance. He's starving. He's left with nothing. He left his home with nothing, and now he's come here to the high priest in Nob. And the priest tells him, well, we have no common bread. We only have the holy bread. And he mentions this idea of ceremonial cleanliness. He said, only if the young men have kept themselves clean, ceremonially clean, is what he's talking about there. Um, and again, I want to make sure sometimes we've taken verses like this in the Bible and made sex a dirty thing. Like, oh, sex is always bad, blah, blah, blah. This is a ceremonial thing. Um, uh, obviously, sex is not a dirty thing in itself, especially it, it's clean and, and right in marriage, in marriage alone. But in some cases, like an Azrite vow, there are things you avoid. And some, especially these, these, these soldiers would have taken vows as well. And the idea is to avoid sex or for the, the Nazarite to avoid strong drink or dead bodies, don't touch a dead thing. So that's the kind of ceremonial thing they're talking about here. When the priest says, yeah, you can have the bread, but you must make sure you're ceremonial, ceremonially clean. Now verse five, David assures him that they are, well, he is anyway. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us 
as always when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today with, will, the, will the vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. And there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now this harkens back to Leviticus chapter 24. This is the tabernacle. This is the show bread. This is, as it says here, the bread of presence. This is, this is glorious stuff here. We're going to talk a lot more about this toward the end of this sermon, but I still want to make us understand that this is not just any bread. This is the bread that God has ordained to show his presence and his, his provision to, to humans. It's this promise. This bread was, was brought in according to Leviticus. Every Sabbath it was changed out by the priest. And there were 12 loaves made, and they were put in the tabernacle, and it was the bread of presence. And we understand, obviously, as we're going to see at the end of this sermon, the bread of whose presence? God's presence, but specifically Christ's presence. The, the, Christ, the bread of life. And, and so what a, what a powerful picture this is. The only bread we have here is the bread of the presence. And so David is able to take this bread, literally being sustained by God himself, literally having this, this bread giving to provide for him. Now, look at this. We see here another problem, though. This is, this is just crazy. You're looking at this holy bread, this bread set apart for the purpose of representing God's presence with his people and his provision for his people. You get this priest and David talking to this priest, lying through his teeth. Just continual lies coming out of David's mouth here. I'm not alone. I'm on a secret mission. My guys are going to meet me over here. We need some bread. Oh, yeah, we're all ceremonial clean. Everything's great. We just need to, so he's just saying whatever needs to be said. So what we would say is, David, you don't deserve the bread. Because you are a liar, liar, and your pants are on fire. You're a bad man. So, God, so David doesn't deserve the bread because he's lying. And my response to that is, you're right. You're right. He doesn't deserve the bread. But the, the, the reason this is in here is to show us and remind us that none of us deserve the bread. None of us deserve the bread. We're all liars. We're all deceivers. Now, come on. We deceive from the womb. We know how to do it. You know how to play your parents when you're very young. I mean, goodness gracious, how do, these, how do they learn to do this? If you have more than one child, you've got a whole team against you. I mean, they can conspire together and play one against the other and so forth. What is that? It's a sinful nature. We've all got it. So this is, this is all that we're seeing here, is that none of us deserve the bread. None of us are really ceremonially clean or perfect. It's, it's just not in us. So what this is, this is a glorious picture of not how we earn something because we're good. It's a glorious picture of how God's faithfulness is available to unfaithful people. That's the glorious truth of this. 
And now we talk about the lie here for a minute. We get back to the practical. Does God condone David's lie? Did God condone Rahab the harlot's lie when she lied and hid the spies and so forth? I'll say this. The text is not condoning David's behavior. It's only reporting it. And we see that all through the Bible. There are many, many things that we see in the Bible that raise great questions with man and his great sense of morality. <laughs> and we say, well, how could this be? Why would the Bible have that in there? And that's horrible. Many times we've got to understand that the Bible is not condoning something just because it contains the episode. It's simply reporting the truth. And we've got to understand, folks, if the Bible is reporting the truth of who we are, it's going to be full of sin. Because that's who we are. It doesn't pull any punches about who we are. And so, again, it's not condoning the lie. And, it, and, and, and God, in his sovereignty, chooses to report David's lying without commenting on it. There's no comment, right or wrong. It's just, this is what happened. And so that's all we have in the text. By the way, though, kids, don't lie. That's not, you know, we don't, we don't take excuse, obviously. It's not excusing that. So here we have this setting up. David's running for his life. He comes to the priest. He's by himself. He has to say what he has to say. He, he finally ends up with this bread to sustain him. It happens to be the holy bread representing the presence of God. Now, the plot thickens in verse 7. This is a very interesting verse interjected right here. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And that's it. And we go right back into the story. What an editor's mix-up, right? In the editing room, they put this in. It was supposed to be somewhere else. No, it's meant to be here. <laughs> Matter of fact, it's, it's this idea of ominous foreshadowing in the theatrical world, right? This is, this is beautiful uh, uh, narrative here. This is, this is like you're watching that movie and you've got the, the hero talking to somebody and he's in a town or whatever like David here and then he, he glances over and sees in the shadows a villain that he may recognize. Hmm, what's he doing here? And that's what's happening here. That's what the Bible, that's what the Holy Spirit's showing us. There's, there's a little twist here to this plot. And this Doeg, the Edomite, is within earshot of what David is doing here, is listening to this conversation. We're going to talk more about him later. And if you've read ahead, you know, spoiler alert, right, about this guy. <laughs> now, he's most likely under the same obligation of this, this ceremonial cleansing. He's, he's either keeping a vow or, or being made ceremonially clean, so he has to stay by obligation in the temple for certain days, and that's what he's detained by the Lord, it says, for. That's why he's there. And yet we'll see what happens later with this guy. But I think it really plays into what comes next in verses 8 and 9 in David's mind as he glances over. I think David, obviously, is telling us David's aware now What's Edom? What, what, what's this Edomite doing here? What's Doeg here for? And look what the next thing David says. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword on hand? <laughs> for I have neither my sword nor my weapons with me. David realizes, hmm, I may need a weapon. So he asks, you have a weapon. Uh, I have no sword, no, no weapon on me because the king's business required haste. 
And the priest said, well, we'll get the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take it, take it. For, for, for there's none but that here. It's all we got, this little old sword of Goliath. David said, there's none like that anywhere. <laughs> yes, I'll take it. Interesting. So now what does David do? He's kind of been found out here. His, his cover's been blown. You've got this, this herdsman of Saul that just so happens to be here with Ahimelech the priest, and he's hearing everything. Some would say also, some commentators, then it may be that David was being as, as deceitful as he was with Ahimelech so as not to in, incriminate him or, or have him um, liable in the sense what you don't know, you can't be punished by Saul for. And so if Ahimelech didn't know why David was there, and he didn't even know it was the fugitive, and he thought he was still under the king's service, well, that should protect him a little bit. So possibly David was trying to protect him uh, as well from having the knowledge of, of him being a renegade and running from Saul and so forth. But what he does is he moves on at this point, and <laughs> verse 10 and 11 are very strange. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. And by the way, that right there is the commentary for the next rest of the chapter in the next, the next book, 2 Samuel. That's the, that's the theme. David fled from Saul. That's what's happening in all these chapters. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. That's weird. You know what Gath is? the hometown of a little guy named Goliath. That's Goliath's hometown. This is the Philistines. David is so desperate that he runs to the Philistines <laughs> for shelter. Look at this. And the servant of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now David probably thought in his mind the Philistines would welcome a defector with the credentials that he brought, right? Wow, what a, what a proud moment, right? The Philistines could say, David joined us. However, you know, there were many reasons why he would be persona non grata in Gath. That means not wanted, not welcome. Mainly because he wiped out many, many, many Philistines. Think about the widows <laughs> and the orphans <laughs> that are the direct result of David. So this was a poor plan, David. This was not well thought out. You come into this place thinking you're going to find shelter here. And yet, he gets arrested instead. Instead of a welcome with open arms, they basically arrest him. That's what we see in verses 12 through 15. Now he has to think of something else because he realizes, ooh, when he hears them singing that song and he realizes they, uh-oh, this is not going well. David has killed his 10,000s and most of those were us, they're saying. The majority of those were us. <laughs> in verse 12 then says, and David took these words to heart. And was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior. 
before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. That phrase, in their hands, is a uh, kind of a symbol of bondage, being taken in their hands. They kind of had him restrained, so to speak. I, I believe, as we see in this context here, that David at this point is brought maybe in some kind of a holding cage or, or something where he's restrained in. Because if you notice what it says, it goes on. It says, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Now, some would think that could be the main gate of the city. Might be. I'm just saying in the context here, we know that he's now been brought before the king because it says, Then Achaz said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. So whatever he's doing, this graffiti on the wall of his cage and, and, and you know, slobber running down his beard and acting crazy, it's happening in the presence now of the king. And he says, why then have you brought him to me? So David has obviously been brought to the king. The king sees his behavior. And he says, this guy's mad. And do I not have enough madmen around me already? Do I need another one? That's what he says. Shall this fellow come into my house as well? Nay, nay, he says. No way. I am not going to have another nut. So he is let go. And we would say, wow, how lucky. But the Psalms that David wrote during this time say different. There are Psalms that, that David wrote, Psalm 34, Psalm 57, during this time that say, you, O Lord, are my deliverance. You, O Lord, have saved me from the ravages. So, so, so David realized, hey, this, yeah, yeah, I'm doing what I can do, but God is the sovereign one, only by his grace. Have I been released? But he's back on the run. Where does he end up? Well, 1 Samuel 22, verse, uh, hold on, yeah, 16a. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now stop right here. So David escaped there and now he fled out in the wilderness there, in the, 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 in the countryside, and he's now in a cave, and it's the cave of Adullam. So think about that. He's reached the pinnacle of loneliness. I mean, here he's running for his life, confused, abandoned, cold, and hungry. Rejected by all. Missing home, right? I mean, can, can you not see David there? I can imagine David in this cold, dank, cave, stomach rumbling as he drifts off to sleep and begins to dream about mama's home cooking, right? Especially that ham glazed, well, we should say glazed chicken for David because he was Jewish, but <laughs> remember mom's glazed chicken recipe made with brown sugar and French's yellow mustard and Werner's ginger ale and pineapple rings topped off with maraschino cherries. Man, he, he, and he, and then, but then he wakes up as the stomach rumbles to these old, stale, leftover pieces of bread that he still has. But he's alone. He's got nothing. He's, he's just on his own. And so what do we do? Well, I mean, we're all there at times. We all have a cave of a, of a doolum. We all do. You may be alone in your marriage right now. That's your cave of a doolum. You feel like this is it. I'm, I'm alone. There's nothing else. I've been abandoned. By my spouse. I mean, this happens even in a marriage where two people live together, but they really don't know each other. It happens in all other relationships, whether it's a work 
situation where you feel alienated because of something you've said or a stand that you have taken. It's between children and parents. It can happen in the church where we, where we get so proud in our stands and, and, and we get angry at each other and the bitterness results and now we're kind of alienated and we're all hiding in our little cave of adulams, totally isolated in a sense. Yeah, we're here, but we're still isolated. And so, so God speaks to this throughout his whole word. Why is this, why does this story, this feeling, when we see David alone in a cave, hungry, cold, and, and betrayed, why does that speak to us so? It's because God never intended for humans to be isolated and alone. He intended for us to live in community together, to show grace to one another, to build each other up, to edify one another to provide solace for each other. That, that's why it just naturally hits us all and we have this cringe inside of our heart, alone, in the dark, cold, afraid. But by God's grace, all of this is part of his plan. And in the next verses, we see that his lonely days are over. Look, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down uh, there to him that sounds like parents, doesn't it? They, they heard, somehow the news got back after some time where David was, somehow, some, some way. And of course they say, man, we gotta, we gotta be there. We gotta be there for our son, right? And then, that's understandable, right? I mean, I'm seeing Travis's mother and father sit right by him right now. They decided to come and encourage him. And it's great, isn't it, when you have visitors and parents come and visit? But the really interesting part of this is in the, the, next, the next few lines. Sure, we expect David's mom and dad to come visit him. Every rotten criminal has a visit from mama. And what does mama say? He's a good boy. No matter how bad the guy was. You know, you've heard that the guy's got a face only a mother could love. What I'm saying is, yes, your mother's going to love you. That's understandable that the, the, the parents come. But it's the next lines Better bewildering. Not only did his parents come, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, unfulfilled in their heart is what that means. They gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What? What is going on? Such an intriguing passage. This vagabond, this one who's been betrayed, he's now public enemy number one on Saul's list, hiding out in a cave with nothing, and yet all those who are hurting and in distress and in debt and unfulfilled, they're drawn to him. And, and they come to him, and not only do they gather to him, but they submit themselves to him, and he becomes their king, their commander. Why? Even though he had been abandoned by the world, some saw him as the king. Some people still realized this is the king. 
Isn't that a glorious picture? This is, this is a picture of the gospel. This is, this is amazing. Because you know what? Jesus has been abandoned by the world. There was nothing lovely about his appearance that men would gaze upon it. They made fun of him. They mocked him. They stripped him naked and crucified him. He came into his own and what his own rejected him. He's a laughingstock among the world at large. And yet some still look at him and see the king. And they're drawn to him. And they forsake all to join in his sufferings. They turn their back on everything else they have in order to suffer with Christ and have him become the commander over their lives and to bow before him and pledge their allegiance to him as king. That's what it means to believe the gospel. Beautiful picture for us. But notice the rest of this. Verses 13 and 14 says, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Now, now this, is, this is important. David now moves on to a place called Mizpah, and it's in a place called Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. This is huge. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the strongholds or in those caves hiding and moving and so forth. He was worried about his parents, right? And he says, well, I'm going to be moving around in different military movements or running for my life. I want my parents to be safe. But who's going to help David? Right? No, every, everybody knows that he's on Saul's most wanted list and he's rejected and he's got nothing. He's destitute. But, but we see in this verse that the king of Moab does help him. And, and, he, and he houses his parents and he guards them and protects them. Why? Why would the king of Moab help David when nobody else would? Well, because there's a little bit of behind-the-scene background sovereignty stuff going on here. Think about this, folks. God's provision for us. I want us to think about this as I kind of reveal why the king of Moab might probably help David. But think about this. God's provision for us is sovereign. That means... He is working out all things that I will ever need long before I ever need them. Do, do, do you catch the significance of that? You see, God is not reacting to your problems and throwing out the best he's got to help you at the time. <laughs> Let's see what's going on in your life. Oh, I think this is the best I can do now for you. I hope that helps. No. God's sovereign provision means that he is working at all things that I will ever need long before I need them. And that's what we see right here. There's no accident that the king of Moab helped David. Why would the king of Moab help David? And I think the answer is because David had some Moabite blood in him. 
He did? Yes. Do you know who David's great-grandmother was? A little girl named Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. Go back to Ruth chapter 4 real quick just to see this. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13, 16, and 17. <laughs> so Boaz took Ruth. Glorious love story, by the way, if you ever want to read that. But Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife. So, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the, the, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Now listen to this genealogy. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. No accident, right? So I believe there you have it. This is one reason I believe that the king of Moab graciously helped David. God sovereignly had already prepared this. But here's our takeaway. Here's our takeaway. We can trust in the same God that David trusted in because that same God is our God. <laughs> Again, that's, when, when we're reading the Bible, we have to see that this whole thing is pointing to God's redemptive provision for a particular people, his people that he loves. And he's been working on their behalf for all eternity. He's been working to provide for us long before we even knew we needed it. That's what we can take from this. That we can rest in God's sovereign provision even when we're in the cave of a doolum. And a clear example of this, again, is the bread of presence that the priest provided to David. I mean, just reading that verse again, verse 6. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence. And that's fitting, folks, because no other bread but the bread of Christ's presence will fulfill us. No other bread but him, he, no other bread but him. <laughs> can completely fill us. It's taken down, it says, each week. Each week it was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. That speaks of this continual provision from God for his people. A continual provision, perpetual, hot Fresh bread will always be provided. And here's the thing we've got to look at this now. David wrote Psalm 57 while he was in the cave. And I was going to read a few verses from that. Here's David in the cave, and he wrote Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. This cave is not my refuge. You're my refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. You see, David believed in a sovereign God who could sovereignly provide for him. He's saying in that prayer, even in the midst of everything that's gone wrong, God, this is your purpose for me. By God's grace, that's the faith every believer has to have. No matter what we're going through, we must rest in this steadfast, unmovable truth that this moment 
is God's purpose for me. It's not out of his purview. It's not out of his hands. He's not taken by surprise. To God who fulfills his purpose in me, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. Think about this. Meditate on this. God will bring rescue from heaven. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And God has done just that. He's done just that in providing the bread of life for us from heaven. We see that all through the scriptures. He's pointing to it. What about the children of Israel? They're wandering through the desert. They're sinners. They're rebellious. That's why they're wandering through the desert. They don't deserve anything from God. They don't deserve the bread. And yet it rains manna from heaven. The bread from heaven falls to an unworthy people by God's grace, fulfilling them. What's that pointing to? It's pointing to what we see here in the tabernacle, the bread that God provides. It's pointing to John chapter 6, 31, ultimately. Jesus said this, and this is, this is, this is for us. John 6, 31 says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Jesus is reminding them of, of that. They knew about that. These Pharisees and leaders, they knew about that. He says, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, he, he interprets this. You know, and I, I, we sometimes read commentaries on, what does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? I'm telling you what, this one's right. This commentator is right. Jesus is going to comment on what those verses mean. What the manna mean? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We want this bread that completely satisfies and fulfills us and forgives us and, and cleanses us. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God's sovereign provision for us is ultimately in Christ. He's all we will ever need. And he is the only hope of life. This is what David meant when he wrote in Psalm 34, which is soon after he received the bread from Ahimelech. Verse 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that glorious? Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So that's our call today. That's what the scriptures always tell us. It's always pointing us to. The world is broken. You're broken. You're sinful. You're, you're, you're in great need. You're in debt. Just like everybody that ran to David, that's us. We're in debt. We owe a debt we can never pay to God. So he provides everything we need. And my closing statement to all of us is, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises.
Forgive us again for acting like David sometimes. We act like mad men and women in this world, trying to run frantically around and fix our problems when all we must do is take uh, refuge in you. Rest in you. Taste and see that you are good. Your provision is always there. Your promises cannot fail. Your covenant is true. So give us the boldness to stand, even in the caves of Adullam that we find ourselves many times. Let us say with David, this is your purpose and you will bring deliverance from heaven. Let us trust by faith that you are good always. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.